fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to another episode of Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology and makes it a reality. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Great to be here, Dan. Very excited. You may or may not remember from our Fascinating Fights Day, but Wonder Woman is my favorite DC superhero and a close tie with Spider-Man for my favorite hero, as much as I get a lot of flack from my family for that, and probably the public. I think those are two great, I mean, those are two great choices, and I, of course I remember that Fascinating Fights episode, it was Wonder Woman versus She-Ra. Now, looking back at that, knowing how you feel about She-Ra as well, that must have been just a dream match for you. Well, actually, at that point, the latest She-Ra wasn't um, around yet. I might have to revise some of my outcomes on the new She-Ra. Um, the 80s She-Ra, I think, still loses to Wonder Woman. I'm good with that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. All right. I don't want you to be regretting your decision at all. Um, but, of course, if we're talking about Wonder Woman, there's no one who knows more about Wonder Woman than our enigmatic engineer, Ben Siebser. Ben, where are you broadcasting from this week? You know, I'm at the Landmark Mall in Alexandria, and I just witnessed this strange thing. There's these jewel thieves, and they got thwarted by this mysterious, beautiful, armored woman with a golden whip. With a golden whip? With a golden golden whip. (laughs) I've never heard it described quite like that, but that does sound very much like Wonder Woman. And I think Wonder Woman needs no explanation. We're going to let's talk about some of her favorite little, you know, little trinkets, things that she uses. You know, not only a lot of this stuff goes back. We got comic books. We got TV shows. You know, obviously the latest movie is Wonder Woman 84. Um, But I got to tell you guys before we start out with this. I really enjoyed this movie upon first viewing, but I don't know why they called it 84. There's barely anything that takes place during 1984, especially Gal Gadot's hairstyle. That was a very modern hairstyle, um, while Kristen Wiig's character did have a nice little crimp. I did enjoy the detail on that for sure. Well, I have to say, Dan, to me, that just proves Wonder Woman's intelligence and genius. She looked at it and said, yeah, I'm not joining in with the 80s hairstyles. I'm just going (laughs) to skip forward. I have a vision of what the future will be. Look, everybody, see how it should be done. Right. And I'm sure she's seen lots of cycles because she is pretty old there. Uh, ben, what was your favorite part of the movie? Uh, I think my favorite part of the movie was actually that that, uh, that mall scene. I really enjoyed seeing the 1980s mall getting uh, run around by Wonder Woman and uh, these terribly inept thieves. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely felt like an 80s movie for that section. That was a very 80s part of it for sure. Um, but, you know, one of the things we got to talk about first on here, and this is, you know, this this is one of her modes of transportation as far back as I can remember in Wonder Woman, and that is the invisible plane. Now, Wonder Woman 84 kind of has its own little take on it. There's lots of several, there's several different takes that obviously people can do. And, you, you know, the three of us have discussed stealth technology, which is what this is kind of is. Now, I have to say, I think this is probably the silliest part in the movie, but Denon, I feel like you may have liked this a little more than I did. Well, I have to say, this is the best invisible jet I've ever seen. Now, whether it's the silliest part of the movie, I may have to agree with you, Dan, but from a inv- history of the invisible jet, you have to understand, I'm very much a Saturday morning Justice League cartoon person, and the transparent jet, which is what you must call it there, where you see whoever's sitting in it flying around, 
clearly is the silliest invisible jet you've ever seen. Um, and what they've done here <laughs> takes it to a whole new level and makes it much better. I, I, this invisible jet moves Wonder Woman up, whereas the transparent jet from um, the Justice League and the Super Friends is probably what kept her just below Spider-Man for me. Wow. I, I mean, I agree with you completely. I'm, you know, I'm a Justice League cartoon fan as well. And I did love to see Wonder Woman just kind of sitting in air with the, you know, the dotted outline of where the Jets should be. Um, but one of the things that, you know, the thing about this movie, and uh, this is the thing I, we're going to have a little difficulty explaining, I think, because what I, I agree with you, Denon, I love that they're actually in a real jet. Now, I'm not going to talk about how silly it is that they break into the Smithsonian, steal a jet, get away, um, have no place to land it, that it's fully stocked, and that a World War One ace can fly, you know, a seemingly modern jet. Let's throw all that stuff out the window for a second. Once they're in it and they're flying around, I do love that they make it completely invisible, but she does it with this magic kind of godlike power. Now, obviously, we are, we are men of science. There is no such thing. Thing is magic, but I want to know: Is there a way for her to have made this this what seemingly looks like magic? Is there a way to do it in the physical realm? Then it's a lot to tackle. But I'm going to you first. Well, I think what this has to do with a little bit is Wonder Woman's deep interaction with materials, perhaps, which we're going to get to with the golden lasso. But I'll leave that piece for later. So she's obviously concentrating very hard. Uh, she's physically in contact with the jet. And to fundamentally make something invisible, as we've talked about before, we're talking some sort of manipulation of the light around it. It's basically taking stealth technology and moving it into the um, visible range, which is the hard thing to do. We're good at doing that for radar. It may have already been a stealth jet for all we know, and she was just moderating it somewhat. So it's really that direct mind-to-matter control, not magic that we're talking about here, that we have to figure out. And it goes to, I think, a lot of her powers in this movie. Yeah, and I think that that's right. Uh, ben, I'm, I'm curious what you think, because obviously this is taking a highly complex device and turning each individual part invisible. Is that difficult to do, or is that pretty universal? Absolutely. So, I mean, there, first, it's, it didn't look like a stealth jet to me. It looked like a pretty <laughs> typical fighter jet. Um, also, I've never seen a fighter jet with side-by-side -side trainer, uh, trainer, <laughs> trainee seats like that. It's, it's always one behind the sure, other. Right, right. <laughs> but uh, anyway, <laughs> so what, what I think is interesting, though, is it, it didn't seem like it was the jet that was becoming invisible, right? So, she talks about how it's she's using the kind of magic spell that her her family taught her that they used to hide the obscura that that hide the island that she's from. And so I think in reality she's not necessarily changing the properties of the jet so much as she is bending space time around the jet such that all of the lights uh, the all the photons that are incident upon that space just get bent around it. And so if you think of it as that so some sort of maybe maybe she's you know has like a pocket black hole and she's creating a gravitational lens that's uh you know bending the light around it i think that is kind of a more that's that's certainly a better way to make this bubble effect of uh light around the object i i just have to say i completely love that idea ben um you know it it 
It does have the challenge you mentioned of how do you make the, the pocket black hole or the bubble around it. But the idea of using space-time to just warp light around your airplane without having to change the airplane is just a great direction to go. I went the material science way. I, I mean, that's, you know, it's related to foam in some fashion, which I haven't been able to work into an episode in a while. But I, I really love just using gravity here as, as silly as that might be. I just love the distinction between transparent versus invisible. I think that that's really important. Um, but, you know, and, and you made that great distinction there, Denon. And you also mentioned material science. And I think that that's going to be the fundamental piece of, of the golden lasso, which I think you called the yellow whip, Ben. Uh, I think I said golden, golden whip. whip. But yeah, <laughs> yeah I, need, I need to work on my, my script needed a little bit more proofing. It that's, seems. A, that's OK. Hey, you know, uh, a lasso by any other name is still owned by Wonder Woman. And, you know, it also looks like a whip a lot of the time. <laughs> well, she definitely uses it like a whip, that's for sure. You rarely yeah. see it tied up like a lasso, to be perfectly honest with you. You did bring yeah. up a good point, Ben. You bring up a good point. Golden whip it is. I think that's a better description. And, you know, I, what I like about this is it's got some very interesting physical properties, I think. You know, in some ways it activates, it, it acts like a bungee cord. It seems to kind of have a mind of its own, or at least works in unison. I don't want to say it's Dr. Octopus arm-like, but it seems to have either its own intelligence or Wonder Woman's able to control it that it looks like it has its own intelligence. It's able to grab bullets and if it spins fast enough, it can block bullets, which speaks to that material science thing that you mentioned, Denon. Uh, it has to be made of something strong. Uh, what do you think? How do you kind of put all of these things under one banner, Denon? Well, you know, here I think it's another example of an interesting change in her tech. Everything you described, you know, I like to compare this to the golden lasso in the television show with Linda Carter as Wonder Woman. This has definitely got some way more interesting and fascinating properties. Um, and as we've uh, apparently all decided, which I agree with, acts more like a whip than it does a lasso at times. But for this level of, of sort of stretchiness, response, strength, um, I really think you have to go kind of in a spider silk or silk-ish direction, right? You're going for a composite material um, with some interesting components that could get very foam-like at the microstructure. Um, I was, you know, actually kind of not kidding about bringing foam into this episode. I think that kind of open cell structure leads to stretchiness and compactness because you can change the amount of open air. Um, spider silk is known to be composite with pieces that bring strength and pieces that bring it the ability to stretch. So you're really looking at the nanostructure here um, in very interesting ways. Um, but the, uh, the stretchiness particularly leads me in that foamish direction of having open space that can collapse and expand. No, I think that that's a good way to put it. Now, I would look at graphene and some of these like micro carbon tubes at, you know, at a very fundamental level. Uh, a lot of them are they're very strong. We're able to take you know a lot of different carbon based materials and make them strong. I don't know if they're quite as stretchy, but they seem to be able to withstand you know bullet strength and also being light. Well, that's definitely, I think, a core component of this, then combined with another material to give you the stretchiness. Mm -hmm. And the structure you make is what gives you the stretchiness. So I, I, I think you're exactly in the right direction, Dan, with one of the particular components. Yeah, you're, you're also going to need some sort of coating that can absorb energy because a lot of these advanced materials like graphene and carbon stuff are very brittle. And if it's this, the lasso is getting, or the whip is getting shot with a uh, bullet, it's going to have to... Um, 
be able to absorb that energy without shattering and you know breaking in two. You know when she's when she's whipping it around to uh, stop the bullets. You know she's got to be spinning that thing at least like a thousand times a second in order to catch a bullet like that. So you know you know th- this is, has to be a very strong material to stand up to that kind of force. I'm impressed with that little calculation there because I'd done a lot of jump rope during the pandemic and I'm not whipping anything around a thousand times a second. So that's got to be pretty <laughs> yeah. she must be like an expert double dutcher. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we know her reflexes are amazing, Dan, cuz let's face it, she can catch bullets with little tiny arm bracelets. So um, the speed of Wonder Woman was never in question. Fair enough, then. And it's an excellent point. Fair enough. Now, one of the other things about this Golden Whip, a.k.a. formerly FKA, the Golden Lasso, is its ability to make someone, once they're lassoed, I guess we're actually going to move into the lasso part of this, to, it makes them tell the truth. And truth is a you know kind of a fundamental part of Wonder Woman. This one, you know, this one's kind of tricky. I've got some very definite ideas on this, but I'm kind of curious. Ben, I'm going to go to you first. You seem like the more honest of the three of us. Uh, <laughs> what, what, where were you with this? Yeah, so I think I think what it comes down to is, you know, you know, <laughs> you know as weird as it is, like, there's some sort of magical coercion, I guess, going on with, with the lasso, right? You're touched by this very kind of pure magical object and it, and somehow it's enforcing you to be honest. Now, where does that come from? So honesty in our, in our heads is, is a decision in our brain to, to say what our brain is telling us and not, and not, you know, not lying, obviously. So perhaps it's able to, you know, interact with the synapses through some sort of electrical thing that makes it so that you have to tell your own, tell the truth as you see it. Now, there's obviously the question of, well, what if you think what's, what's not true is true? And I do wonder in that case, um, can it, can it make a false true belief uh, get flipped around. Hmm. That's a really interesting take on that. Uh, Denon, I'm curious where you fall with that. Well, I'm strongly in the electrical realm with this. I know there's a couple of different ways. We've got true serum, we've got electrical lie detectors. Um, but I really think, and it ties to the graphene part, carbon and graphene is, is an excellent conductor um, done the right way. Um, and so I think you can build on the basic mechanism of a lie detector because I feel like there's different versions of her lasso throughout the period. And I, uh, I may be wrong on this, so we may get some um, comments. I think there's been versions where it just allows her to detect whether you're telling the truth or not. And then there's versions that force you to tell the truth. I think the second version can, has to be more active. Um, and that is clearly, I, I alluded to this. She clearly in this version of Wonder Woman has some mental powers and capabilities. So her connected to the lasso can do, I think, what Ben said, send the right electrical impulses to force your brain to speak only what it thinks is true. And I suspect um, if you truly believe something that's false, you're going to say that statement because it can only uh, detect what you think is true, not what is actually true. I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, this kind of brings up a philosophical question of what is truth? What do we believe truth to be? And, and, you know, we mentioned truth serum. I was doing a little research and there isn't, I mean, if there is a truth serum, it is, it is 
heavily protected and guarded by our by the world's <laughs> economic powers <laughs> or the most with the most advanced spy agencies or whatever. So I don't have an exact answer on that, but lots there are lots of different chemicals that can break down. You know, you meant that can kind of break down in your mind the barrier between truth and and the untrue. And I think, you know, Ben, you mentioned, you make a good point here is in your brain, you compartmentalize a lot of things and your brain knows what is true. And if you are telling a lie, you have to construct, uh, you know, a, a, an alternate reality. And I think a lot of these chemicals can kind of break that down, th- that other part. And in, and in doing so, it makes telling the truth so much co- easier from a cognitive standpoint than trying to determine what is what is real, what your made up thing was, and then spit that back out. So I think in some ways these 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 truth serums or these chemical pathways allow your brain to kind of function in its natural way instead of the unnatural barriers you put up. Is that overly complex, Ben, or do you see where I'm going with that? You're exactly right, Dan. I think, as I understand it, the way these chemicals work is they inhibit the ability of your brain to construct stories beyond what uh, the default truth is, which is what your kind of hippocampus does by assembling your own known narrative. No, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I love that. And I think if there is a truth serum and that does exist and Wonder Woman's aware of it, I would say that she's got little nanobots on her on her seemingly highly advanced golden whip uh, that maybe inject some of these things in on the microscopic level. That's what I'm going to go with. That's my explanation. You know, one of the things I want to talk about, we have to get into this, and that is the Dreamstone, which is I think is the coolest part of this movie. And that is this seemingly valueless citrine jewel that they find that's inscribed, you know, with this this um, with this saying about you hold this object, you must touch it physically, and you make a wish, and then that wish will come true. I like this, you know, this is one of those kind of fantastical things that may be a little difficult to explain, but I think when we look at the nature and fabric of reality, the question we have to ask is, if we have a wish, can we alter that fabric of reality and bring it into being, or can we, uh, you know, uh, play with the probabilities of the future from a quantum level and adjust that? I don't know, I'm kind of out of my depths here, Denon, but I feel like you'll be able to describe this very well. Well, I think the interesting features of this that make it something worth thinking about always come down to what you alluded to as quantum mechanics, which, as I've said before, and I like this quote from another scientist who I can't remember, just because something's hard to explain and quantum mechanics is hard to understand doesn't mean quantum mechanics explains it. But I think in this case, that's your only chance. Um, And I like the idea that you have to physically touch the device Um, And consciously think about what you want, because what you're probably the only hope you would ever get anything that looks wish like is manipulating the measurement and collapse behavior of the wave function. Uh, It may be as simple as what we've talked about before, sending yourself into an alternate of the many worlds in the many worlds hypothesis. Um, There's lots of different ways you might imagine it. The challenge, of course, is we know it's very hard to have quantum effects at the macroscopic level. Um, that might place a limit on wishes and what you can and can't do with them, uh, which is always an interesting game in any wish device is what are the rules around it. But I can't see any way of getting something like this other than an augmentation or a variation on how we fundamentally understand quantum mechanics. I I mean, that, that seems about right. And I think, you know, the rules kind of do dictate how or how likely that would happen. You know, you have to be in physical contact, as you mentioned. What's kind of 
interesting about this is that the wish, it the wish that is fulfilled has a slight little twist on it. So you're not exactly getting what you want. It's like this ironic twist. And also you end up giving up something. So when you have the jewel and you make a wish, the jewel or whatever is creating, you know, the, the forces of the universe are deciding what you're giving up, what your most valuable possession is. But as we see later on, which I think is kind of interesting, is the um, a guy named Max Lord he wishes to become the stone itself. And I think that that also poses a much different question. And so, uh, Ben, I got a question for you. When you look at something like that and you see this this kind of ability get passed on to someone else, um, how, how do you think that that kind of works? Well, I think, so whatever the quantum nature of this wishing stone was that allows it to, uh, you know, qu- you know, qu- change the quantum nature of the universe to grant a wish, I, I don't see any problem with that power being transferred to another object. I mean, if it can change the world in such drastic ways, you know, there's no reason it couldn't transfer that power directly to another person uh, or to any object for that matter. Like you could wish, I wish, you know, the instead of being a stone that you were a, uh, you know, you were a cool sword and then it would be a sword instead <laughs> I, I guess that that makes sense i mean i guess the properties can be transferred very easily i mean if it is capable of other things one of the things that i thought was kind of an interesting concept in this movie is what do you do if two wishes you know are at odds with each other you know there, there's a couple there's a lot of fantastic things that happen one person wishes all of a certain type of people out of england so what do those people just disappear immediately and then where do they go there's also a scene where a big barrier a big wall is is built up around um a middle eastern city uh, you know then and i'm curious what would happen if you know from a physics standpoint what would happen if you've got two wishes that are in direct opposition diametrically opposed what happens then well, first, it's interesting. Under the initial set of rules, um, it's very clear only a single wish can be made at a time. Um, because, well, I guess you could have multiple people touch the stone, but the stone is usually only being touched by one person. And once it's the um, that's transferred to the person, the person makes sure they're only touching one. So presumably these happen in a linear order. So your wish happens in the other. Now, the one about everybody being wished out of the country um, I thought was, you know, that was at a later point, right, where multiple people are making wishes at the same time. And if we go with our quantum theory of this, I think you're looking at some sort of quantum interference effect, because the basic idea is everything's a wave function, and you're looking for a particular state of that wave function. Now you're trying to create the two. I think both people would see uh, some strange, subtle variations in their wish due to these interference effects. If they were completely unrelated to each other, you see no interference. As you pointed out, if they're about the same thing, but diametrically opposed, we see that in quantum all the time. What is the spin of the system? Well, is it up or down? You can be in a state where it's both. And then that leads to interesting interference effects down the road. So initially, You'd put the world in a state where both things were true, but in superposition, and then it would have to evolve, and you would see what would happen as you moved forward. No, I think that that makes a lot of sense, and I think, you know, this is probably, I would argue, this is probably the one physical effect that I think is, might be the biggest one that we've talked about, because in a lot of ways, you're really altering the very fabric of reality. I mean, I don't want to sound like Doc Brown here, but some of these wishes could really unravel the very fabric of the space-time continuum, and I think... 
anything that would be that powerful would be very tricky to wield because I think it would be very easy to disrupt something at such a fundamental level, which could include having someone wish to be a wish machine. You know, I mean, any, any kid who's ever read Aladdin, or, you know, 1001 Arabian Nights, everyone wants to wish for a million wishes. Why doesn't anyone ever do that? And I think that that in and of itself, if you were to do that and have the ability to do anything you wanted, at some point you would break the machine that we call reality, right? Well, I think so. But I also think what's interesting about this, a clever rule I liked is something else has to make the conscious decision to do the wish. His challenge, once he becomes the wish machine, is it's not quite the same as getting a million wishes or more wishes because he can't actually make them. And any individual, it seems, can only use the wish machine once because at one point he goes to a worker, says, what do you want? The worker says something that doesn't happen because he's already used the machine. So that's the other interesting rule built into this um, that puts a little bit of control on it. Um, and it's something we'll, we'll get to is there's always a cost to the wish, which is an interesting kind of conservation law that's going on. Yeah, I wonder if you were to like wish for more wishes, if like each wish would just like counteract the last wish because the, the price you pay is your last wish being rescinded. Oh, that's interesting. Like you can only get one and you can wish for something else, but it takes place of the previous one. Although that'd be yeah. great. It'd be like a return policy, though. If you don't like the wish, you yeah. just say, I want something else. And then it's like the first wish didn't happen. I mean, in a way that kind of happens, too, in the movie, right? Like theoretically, people could have rescinded their wishes and gotten a new one. That is true. And also, I mean, there is a scene where I think the Minerva has two wishes that are granted. So it, they play with the rules here. We're going we're gonna to go. I think we're going to play a little hard, more hard and fast with the rules than they did in the movie, because we're going to go with one wish per person, uh, which I think does create a lot of problems. Because, you know, when he does, when Max does become the wish, the, the dreamstone, he is like a genie in some ways, and we see this in a lot of other movies like Aladdin where the genie is all powerful, but only if someone else, you know, asks for the wish. And in this, what I what I actually really thought was clever is by becoming the wish person, by becoming the wish machine, the wish generator, he's able to decide what he takes from people instead of, I, you know, the, the forces of the universe, for lack of a better term, kind of deciding what is taken away. You know, I, I really like that aspect of this movie. Yeah, I, I think in some ways it implies that there was a sentience already in the Dreamstone when it was still a rock that was choosing what to take from you. And once a sentient, uh, uh, an even more sentient being than the stone is in charge, then they can really make those decisions and decide what is the uh, what is the fair cost for the wish. Well, I also think it goes to this quantum idea of a wave function, and you're picking the collapse, but everything is kind of um, coherent and correlated in your own personal wave function. So what he's doing as the other conscious agent, you're picking, I want event A to happen. Well, that's coupled with a lot of other things. He picks the event B that has to also be different for A to be different. So there's two conscious, as you said, Ben, he's sentient and highly conscious, and there's two agents each picking an effect because you have to have two effects or it doesn't work. That makes a lot of sense too, where if you're, you're collapsing the wave function to a new reality, there's going to be other things. And, you know, if, if you look at it from a karmic sense rather than a strictly quantum sense, like if you ask for one good thing, 
you're going to get a bad thing to balance it out. I think there's definitely a yin and yang. I don't know about the structure, but definitely there, there feels like you know yin and yang vibe to this. And I like that conservation of energy because that's kind of how I thought about this. You know, nothing's free. And I imagine that as a stone, the wish stone is able to grant a wish, but it takes a part, it takes matter, it takes energy to do that. So maybe there's only a certain number or it's only capable or, you know, a piece of the citrine, the citrine itself actually disappears. But then as the wish, as the dream stone himself, Max has to give that energy out and he has to get it from someplace else. It has to go someplace. It has to come from someplace and go someplace else. And I think he's finding very quickly that it is very difficult to maintain that as a human being without giving up something of yourself. And so he's always, it's a self, you know, it's kind of like a, the snake eating his own tail. He's, it's a self-driving um, process that is kind of eating him up inside. I don't know. What do you think about that, Denon? Oh, I do. I like that. I mean, it really is interesting to see his spiral downwards um, and what finally triggers him to, we won't have a spoiler, but what finally triggers him in the end. Yeah. No, I think so. And I I just think that there's it's got to come from someplace if it's going to go someplace else. Nothing's for free, Denon. We all know that. And I think that nowhere else is that more clear than in the world of physics. And, you know, one of the other rules here is that the item, the, you have to touch the actual stone itself. He, you know, when Max is the dream stone, he's actually physically touching people or they're, they are touching him. And this comes to, there's a, you know, a point in the movie where he's you know he's kind of gone on on a, a psychotic binge of dream of, of wishes and he's trying to get everyone in the world to make a wish and he uses satellite broadcasting signal with the idea that radiation or particles are actually touching each individual person therefore he's able to that constitutes physical contact uh you know I, I don't know does this actually work that way Could, would it be that all the photons are connected um how is, is that make sense or and if not which I think the answer is no how would we solve this problem well I, th I think from a start I mean photons are both particles and waves so in the movie when they say it's a particle beam that you know that then met well they, they say it's a particle beam that like interacts and uh fiddles with all the technology in the world to force your signal and so i don't know i don't know how like just plain old photons are gonna fiddle with the technology both old and new all around the world but from the sense of there are particles that were once in um once at wherever the broadcast is coming from and then are sent all around the world, that part is kind of true. Like the power that goes up in the signal and then comes back down, there is some, I mean, obviously there's loss and, you know, a lot of the power in the transmission back down is coming from the sun because, you know, these satellites will have solar panels on them and that's where the real broadcast strength is coming from. But there is to some degree an unbroken chain of photons from the two, from the two locations. So Dan, I think... At first, I'm, I saw this and I'm like, this is utterly ridiculous for an otherwise flawless, perfect movie where I loved everything in it. But then I thought about it more. Uh, I'm not sure which one of those two views I'm going to change. No, um, I do think that at the, at, at the end of the day, I realized something we overlook is that touch from a physics standpoint you're not really physically touching anything. It's all electricity and magnetism. It's all electrons repelling each other. And electricity and magnetism from a core physics point of view is an exchange of virtual photons. 
Um, it really is an exchange of light, which is what photons are. So in a very strange way, with a lot of thought, I came back to the idea that, wow, this idea that just because the scientist explains to the president, this is like you're able to touch everyone, which was clearly just meant to be an analogy. The president takes it seriously and our wish giver decides, oh, I'm really going to be touching everyone. And I'm just like, that's just all bizarre. There is this strange way where if we take what touches seriously, sending photons between things is the fundamental definition of touch. You know, and I agree with you there. I, I mean, that's what I thought is I thought this was utterly ridiculous. And then as I thought about, well, photons are kind of touching everything. It actually does work. I don't know if that was an accident or if this movie is way more brilliant than any one of us can possibly understand. But I think it actually does work. And that's what you're saying. I think it, in the end it might. Ben, what do you think? Yeah, it absolutely. I, I I hadn't quite taken that next step, but I mean, even the president says, oh, I think it's just a figure of speech when he says, you know, in reference to the touching everything. But I mean, yeah, you, you can't actually touch somebody else. You can only exchange particles with them. And so you know, how is that different over a distance versus not? Right. I mean, we, no one touches anyone. That is really the paradox that I think, it's not really a paradox, but that I think is going to be the mind bender. People are going to walk away from this episode realizing that there is no such thing as touch. There is only the transfer of particles. And I'm going to leave you with that as we move on to our errors, additions, and omissions section. Things we want to talk about, but we're not going to, but sometimes we do. So ben, did we forget anything that you want to mention on this episode? Well, I also really appreciated how th when they were describing the satellites, they say it's a particle beam system based just like the uh, Star Wars program. And I really appreciated their uh, bringing up the ill-conceived and ill-fated uh, 1980s Star Wars program that didn't actually really work. <laughs> But uh, talking about how, oh, I guess we did something good with it. So. I mean, there's a great 1984 reference, one of the few that's in this movie. Yeah. I, I like that as well. Uh, Denon, did you have anything? Yeah, I have a couple of things. One is, I'll just say, for the record, love, always loved her bracelets and how she deflected bullets with them and the headband as a boomerang. Not much to talk about there from the tech side, but I just got a you know, hat off to that. My other thing, I have great respect for Linda Carter being completely connected to Wonder Woman throughout the years. People may not remember the uh, movie Sky High where she's a principal and she makes a reference to not being Wonder Woman. And then to have her as a cameo in this, I won't reveal what the cameo is, but I just great respect there and, and hats off to her as well. I'm a Linda Carter fan as well. Love the cameo. Um, and I'm with you on, on the bracers. I mean, that really speaks more to the, ref the, the reflexes of Wonder Woman than anything else. Um, one of the things I thought was really silly in this movie is this golden flying armor. You know, in a previous episode, Ben, you mentioned, uh, you know, to the hundredth place of the value of gold bars you saw on screen. I don't know what the value of this particular suit was from a financial standpoint, but from a tactical and fighting standpoint, the value was absolutely zero. I don't know... Gold is a terrible armor. Uh, it's too cumbersome to fly. Uh, I, I don't even understand why this is in the movie, to be perfectly honest with you. But I did love the obstacle course at the beginning. And, you know, there's a there's a fun little thing where Wonder Woman tries to cheat the system. I really liked the way she did that. Um, I thought she got away with something there. I was kind of rooting for her through the whole thing. And, you know, the other thing is that Chris Pine is in this movie. And he is so enamored with all this stuff that takes place in 1984. You would think that it was like Encino Man, where he was like, frozen from a caveman uh, and had never seen electricity before. I think he needed to dial that back a little bit. He's a little extreme there. Um, but, you know, if we've missed anything, anything at all 
and you want to get in touch with the show, it's easy to do. We're on Twitter at FGGBTPod. We're on Facebook at FGGBT. But you can get in touch with us individually. Denon, where can people find you? Well, people can find me on Instagram and Twitter. Just reverse my name at Denon Michael. And then on Facebook, stick in the prof. It's at Prof Denon Michael. And Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at bseepser. How do you spell that? B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Instagram at the Daniel J. Glenn, and on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind. Now, I got to tell you, be it the Dreamstone, a preserved monkey hand, or a lens lamp, if you find yourself in possession of an object that will grant wishes, leave it where it is, or try to destroy it. No good has ever come from people having their wishes fulfilled. And no, that's not cynical at all, right? <laughs> uh, don't forget, you want to be a superhero, not a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, if you like this show, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? The good news is we're on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and now Spotify. If you're not already on those platforms, don't worry. We've made it very easy for you. Go to our website, F triplegbt.com that's f triplegbt.com where you will find links to everything you're looking for all the subscribe buttons at the bottom of the page links to our social media are right there and if you go to the top of the page you'll see a little button that says episodes click on that and go to your favorite episode there you can find the show in its entirety. You can find the links that we talked about, the in real life examples that we brought to you, including videos. And of course, we've got each episode has its own YouTube video. You can watch it there if you prefer. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.